I wonder if you've noticed that there is quite an exploding interest in prophecy these days. Quite an increase of attention to eschatology. It's a big fancy word that simply means the study of the end times. Eschaton is end things in Greek, ology, the study of. And there's a lot of interest in the end times. There's a lot of people that uh, believe that we are in the end of the end times, that the coming of the Lord at, that we've been reading about and singing about this morning is soon and very soon. A lot of interest. There's talk of these last four blood moons that were coming into the Jewish year of Jubilee starting, uh, I think, September 23rd. There's interest in this rise of an end-time Babylon and debate and discussion as to where that is in the world today. There's the tragic and horrible redefining of marriage that we have experienced as a country with the highest court of the land simply reflecting the mindset of its citizens, at least the majority of them. There's the fear of the Iranian nuclear deal that has uh, gotten a lot of attention and continues to do so. There are debt levels of individuals and companies and countries that seems to be spinning completely out of control into numbers that are beyond our ability to even comprehend, really. Natural disasters, famines, wars and rumors of wars, all of these things are gathering a lot of interest and selling a lot of books. Filling a lot of pews, actually. Experts abound. I always get leery when I see that anyone is an expert of anything, right? You know, the expert on marriage. The expert on prophecy. Oh, really? (laughs) YouTube videos are going viral. Books are selling by the millions on these topics. But beyond the lacking of sound exegesis, and beyond the lack of sound application, something is missing in much of this emphasis and in many of these books. In fact, there is a huge biblical emphasis that's always found in relationship to eschatology that you don't find much of in a lot of what's being peddled to Christians today. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And listen as I read verses 13 to 16. And tell me if you can see it. Tell me if you can find here the huge biblical emphasis that is lacking in much of the interest in prophecy and eschatology. I'm going to read verses 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
The main point of these verses this morning, the main point that I want to get across to you in the time that we have together is this. True hope promotes holiness. True hope in the return of Christ promotes holiness in our daily lives. Or, to say it in two words, the title of the sermon, Ethical Eschatology. Ethical Eschatology. In other words, whatever we believe about the end times doesn't matter unless it is promoting a higher level of ethics, a higher level of holiness. The timing of the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, the timing of the rapture is irrelevant if I'm not ready for the rapture. So we may need to focus this morning on ethical eschatology, on the main point of hope promoting holiness. There are two separate commands here, main commands in these verses, but I want you to see that they come in a critical order. So here's our plan. We're going to look at the commands this morning. Be hopeful first and then be holy. And we're going to consider why they're in this order. And we're going to consider why they're packaged here together for us in this paragraph of Scripture. This is a unit of thought in Peter's mind as he brings these two seemingly disparate commands together. This is husband and wife. This is two becoming one. There is really one focus here, and there is one critical order for us to consider. So let's begin with the first of these two commands, found in verse 13. The main command of be full of hope. Be hopeful. Now let's look carefully at this. First of all, he says by way of preparation for obedience to this command, that we must prepare our minds for action. This is literally gird up the loins of your mind. He's talking about the ancient wardrobe of a robe, and before you would work or fight or run, you must do something with that wardrobe. You must take that robe that would go all the way down to the ankles and and begin to tuck that into your girdle, into your belt, and be able to act then. So he's saying to us, before we can even have hope, We've got to take the loose thoughts, the straying thoughts, and we've got to gather them up and tuck them in. Secondly, he says, keep sober. Literally. Don't be intoxicated. Don't get drunk. You can't have your hope fixed on the right things if you're inebriated. But there's also a figurative soberness here. We must stay alert, must be aware of what's going on around us. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. Keep sober-minded. The Christian life is not a roller coaster ride. The Christian life is not looking for the next spiritual high. The Christian life is a walk, a gradual, continual ascent. Keep sober. Don't sink too low when things seem to be falling apart because they're not. God's on his throne. Don't get too high. Think things are better than they are if you're still on this earth (laughs) because they're not. We're waiting for that which is perfect. Keep sober. These are the preliminaries to the command. Now, with those in place, you can fix your hope. But I want us to really look carefully at what he says to us here. We can make mistakes as we read the Bible. We can assume we think we know what it says. We can even leave words out that are actually there. And we may come to this passage this morning and believe that it says, fix your hope on Christ. And it doesn't. 
Or we might believe that it says fix your hope on the revelation of Christ. But it doesn't. And it doesn't say fix your hope on the rapture. We want to look carefully at every word because it is instructive. Fix your hope completely, 100% on what? On the grace. There it is. There's the object here of our hope. We are to fix our hope on the grace that is coming to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not on Christ specifically here, not on the revelation of Christ, but what he is saying is we fix our hope on glorification. That's what he's talking about. The revelation of Christ is his return. It's the unveiling of Christ. It's the manifestation of Christ. We believe that Peter here is speaking of the rapture, which will happen at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, a pre-tribulation rapture. Fix your hope on this return of Christ for the church. But what he really wants us to hone in on is the grace that will come to us at the revelation of Christ. He wants us to fix our hope on a future grace that we have not yet experienced, but we will if we are Christians here this morning. If we are believers in Jesus and followers of Christ, this is coming our way. Fix your hope on your glorification. That's what he's saying. What is glorification? It's not just when we die and go to heaven as believers. Yes, our spirits will be glorified and made perfect, but that's not the whole story, is it? That's not the whole picture. Jesus didn't just die on a cross to save your spirit or to save your soul. He died on a cross to save all of you, lock, stock, and barrel, every part of your being and aspect. He died on the cross to save So when he says, fix your hope on your glorification, that's what I think he means here, is he means when you become body, soul, spirit, all of your being becomes perfect. Glorification is at the rapture. Whether we have already died and our bodies are laid low in the grave or we're still living, at the rapture of the church, we will be glorified. We will be made like Christ in His risen, glorified, resurrected body. He is our forerunner. He is the firstfruits. We are His brethren who will be made like Him. So I believe Peter is saying to us, this first command is to settle all of your hope on the fact that one day, believer, you are going to be glorified. Now, this has many aspects, doesn't it? Many ramifications. Let's consider them. There is a physical aspect to this, isn't there? There is a huge physical dimension to our glorification. We have a physical hope then. Come with me and let's explore this together. A day is coming when there will be no more pain, no more allergies, no more cancer, No more broken bones. No more diseases. You will never be sick again. There is a day, I mean, it's almost like we can't even conceive of this without just talking about it in the negative. About what's not going to be there. Because we can't even imagine a life of perfect health. I've never seen anyone with perfect health. No more aging. No more weakness of the body. No more not singling anyone out, coughing. (laughs) No 
can, can you imagine a life without any pain or threat of pain? Without any sickness or threat of sickness? Without any death or threat of death? Our glorification is going to mean that death is conquered once and for all. We will not even be subject to death. We will be immortal. Invincible. Unable to bleed. Unable to hurt. Unable to decay. Unable to gray. Unable to stoop. Unable to fall down, fall apart. What is it in your life physically right now that is a challenge? Do you have digestion challenges? Do you have migraine challenges? Do you have visual challenges? Do you have hearing challenges? Do you have teeth challenging? No more root canals. No more toothaches. No more stiff back in the morning. No more arthritis. What is it in your life that is your thorn in the flesh? Fix your hope on the day when it's gone forever. And that's just talking about it from a negative standpoint. What about the positive standpoint? What about the standpoint that we will be forever young, forever prime, strong, powerful, alert, intelligent? Our senses will be keen. Martin Luther believed that Adam and Eve could hear like the greatest creatures on the planet. And that they could see like eagles. And that they could run like gazelles. He believed that. I think I agree with him. What would we be like when we are like what we were supposed to be like from the beginning before sin entered into this equation? Forever perfect and strong and vibrant prime no more weaknesses of the flesh we're just scratching the surface of just the physical in our glorification what about the spiritual hope what about all of the transformation that's going to come for us when we are raptured can you imagine what it will be like when all of your immaterial being, who you are apart from your physical body, is made perfect. Again, we can think of it in terms of what's not going to be there and what will be there. On the day He calls us, there will be no more mental anguish of any kind no more fear no more doubts no more dread you will never have a lack of proper confidence you will never be afraid you will never feel lonely your spirit will be made perfect when he calls us to himself we will no longer be tempted by sin there will never be another moment of battle with sin. The devil will no longer have any influence or ground of attack in your life. The world's gone. Its deception is gone. The devil is gone. My flesh is gone. I will no longer ever sin again. I won't even be able to sin. The spiritual transformation is probably greater than the physical.
When we talk about the spiritual, we're talking about our mental aspect. We're talking about our emotions. We're talking about our moral being. We're talking about everything that is immaterial. It is beyond our ability really to conceive of what life would be like when we are unable to sin again. When God changes us and transforms us so deeply that all we can do is perfectly conform to God's law, God's word, and God's son. We will line up with all of the holy will of God. We will please him in all respects. Our motives will always be right. Our desires will always be right. Our words, our thoughts will always be right. We'll never have a stray thought. We'll never have a blasphemous thought. This is the hope of the believer. Fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a physical hope and this is a spiritual hope. What is hard in your life right now that is non-physical? Are you afraid of the future? Are you weary? Are you lonely? Do you feel unloved? Do you feel rejected? Have you been rejected? Can you just even try to think about what that will be like when all of that is gone? When you are in perfect unity with every other child of God. Can you imagine an existence where there is no longer any falling outs? No longer any strained relationships? Where everyone perfectly loves and is unified with everyone else. Where we never get sideways. We never misunderstand each other. We never argue. We never fight. We're just nothing but perfect, holy love toward each other all the time. This is what awaits us. I want you to take a moment every day. Here's your assignment, believer. Take a moment every day to consider what your new body will be like. And I want you to take a moment every day to consider that God loves you so much that He will remove every molecule of sin in your existence. He will even remove your ability to sin against Him. Get up in the morning and stop and just reflect (laughs) as you're dragging your achy body out of bed. What will my new body be like? If one of us in this room was in our new body right now, the rest of us would be tempted to worship that person. (laughs) I mean, we would be tempted to fall on our faces before a, a God. I want you to get up in the morning and I want you to think as you put on your battle gear and you put on your armor and you're going to face the devil and the world and your flesh that is everywhere you go, there it is. And as you live your life tomorrow, I want you to consider for a moment, one day you will not be able to sin. One day, a day is coming when physically, morally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, we will be conformed to the image of the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. That is where our hope is. Not just that Christ is coming, 
but that I will be conformed to him in that day. That's the first command. The second command is in verses 14 through 16. And it is simply, be holy. Command number one, be hopeful. Command number two, be holy. Be set apart. Holiness means to be set apart unto God. To be set apart from sin. Holy means unique or other. The nation of Israel was supposed to be holy or set apart from all the other nations. And so God gave them all of their laws and all their requirements. With their diet and their clothes and their Sabbath and their worship. So that they would not blend in. So that they would not be like everyone else. They were to be a holy people to the Lord their God. And so are we. We are to be set apart more and more from sin. As obedient children, verse 14 says. This is our identity. This is who we are in Christ. You are now an obedient child, not a child of disobedience, not a child of darkness. You're not a child of Satan. You're a child of God. As obedient children... Don't be like this, but be like this. Don't be squeezed into the mold of your former lust. Your your propensities to sin that you had before you were a Christian. Fight them. Resist them. Don't allow them to bring you back where you used to be. That's the old man. He's dead and gone. I don't want to go back there and be him again. As obedient children, do not be squeezed into your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. When you did not know God, when you did not know Christ, that was how you lived. And those lusts are still out there, and they're still calling your name, and they're still trying to reel you in and bring you into their domain. And he says, fight that. Fight that as an obedient child of God. Remember who you are in Christ. Stand up to your sins. Fight against your sins and say, I am not that slave anymore. I'm a slave of God, not of lust. Fight your sins. And then on the other hand, that's the negative on the other hand, verse 15. But like the Holy One who, what? Called you. See, we were called out of that life, weren't we? We didn't decide one day I'm going to wake up today and today I think I'll become a Christian. No, God interrupted. God intervened and surprised us, didn't He? Every conversion is a surprise. No one ought to be a Christian. No one can be predicted to be a Christian. People are Christians because a holy one called them. And he calls us with a holy calling. He calls us to himself. He calls us to come out and be separate. To live a life of distinction. To live a life of purity. Like the holy one who called you then, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. The alls of the Bible ought to jump out. This is a reminder that we can't be 95% holy. We can't be 99% holy. This has a sense to it of an all or nothingness, doesn't it? There's a sense of holiness that you're either holy or you're not holy. And and so I I can't harbor certain sins and I can't allow them to continue to live in my life and be on a path of holiness. This is the way sanctification works. It's always either all or nothing. You can't hold back and still grow in holiness. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We've got to watch out for the little sins, folks. We've got to watch out for the little crack in the door to Satan. To the way the world is just sort of deceiving us and sort of reeling us in. Be holy in all your behavior. All of your behavior. Why? Because it's in the Scripture. Because the word of God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
Here God is calling us to his own standard. He is the standard of all perfection and now he calls us to be like him. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, how do these two commands go together? Be hopeful. Be holy. When we preached through First Peter, they were two different sermons. With just the slightest indication of this link. Today, the whole sermon is about the link, ultimately. The sermon is about ethical eschatology. How do these two commands go together? Why are they together? Why do they form one unit of thought, one paragraph in Peter's mind? Why are they in this order? Listen, we do not hope to become sovereign and we do not hope to become all-powerful and we do not hope to become all-knowing but we hope to become holy we hope to become like Christ in his holiness Peter is indicating here that we need to pursue now what we will become then. This is how we fight sin. We look sin square in the eye and we say, that's not what I'm going to be. Therefore, I'm going to fight you now. You are not my future, so you're not going to be my present. That's how these come together. We could say it this way, hope And holiness go together because our hope is holiness. Mm. Our hope is perfect holiness. To be glorified is to finally be holy. If you want to win battles against sin today, then you must have hope that a day is coming when you will not have battles with sin you with me I've got to believe that one day this war will be over if I'm going to have strength to fight it today I've got to believe that I am going to be spotless and perfect in practice not just position in practice if I'm going to get up And fight with all of my might every day of my life. I want to say that again. If you want to win battles against sin today, you must hope that one day you will not have battles against sin. So listen carefully. Our hope is in grace. (laughs) Make that the object. Our hope is not the rapture per se. Our hope is grace that's going to come to us at the rapture. Our hope is God's favor when we see Christ, not just seeing Christ. Because, beloved, the rapture is terrifying if I'm not ready for it. The rapture is something to be dreaded if I am not ready for it. And guess what? I'm not ready for it. I'm ready for it in my position. 
I'm ready for it in my justification, but I am not ready for it in my practice. I am not ready for it in my sanctification, and neither are you. We are not ready to stand before the God of the universe. The bride has stains on her dress. There are grease stains, there are wine stains, there are spaghetti sauce splattered on our white dress. Our hope is not that we're going to see Christ. Our hope is that He's going to give us grace when we see Christ. You see the order here? This is so important to our war. We're all at some degree or another in Romans 7. We all can... can Relate to Paul when he said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Paul is anticipating the grace at the rapture. Do you see the order and how important it is? Beloved, if you have a call to holiness without a hope of transforming grace that is nothing but old covenant. A call to holiness without hope of transforming grace is law, legalism. It is a crushing burden that you cannot bear. It is death. It is nothing but death. But a call to holiness on the heels of hope in grace is new covenant Christianity. Listen, we don't fight sin to earn heaven. We fight sin because we're already going to heaven. Amen? That's why we fight sin. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 lays this before us so clearly. First John, just a couple of books over from First Peter and chapter three and verses one to three, will you listen as I read? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Children of obedience was Peter's phrase. Such a great love. Poured out on us, bestowed on us, not with an eyedropper, but in abundant measure. And such we are. We're not trying to become, not will be, not some future anticipation. We're not hoping to become saints. We're saints now. We're children of God now. For this reason, the world, the fallen world system under the reign of Satan does not know us. We are weird, we are outcasts, we are exiles, we are strangers, we are pilgrims in a barren land. The world does not know us. We don't belong to the world. We've been crucified to the world. It doesn't love us. It doesn't know us. It doesn't want us. Because it did not know Him. It did not know Christ. We're following in His pattern. Beloved. There's your identity again. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. I mean, we know it very slightly, 
I mean, we don't know this in fullness, what this is going to look like, what this is going to feel like. It hasn't appeared what we will be. But we know that when he appears, that's the revelation. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. No longer walking by faith, but walking by sight. No longer any veil of our flesh in the way. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There it is again, right? Ethical eschatology. Real hope is morally purifying. Real hope is always morally purifying because real hope anticipates the return of Christ, me being made like Christ. And so just that thought alone ought to purify my life because I don't want to get caught in sin if he's going to return at any moment, if I really believe that. And I want to close the gap. All of this Christian life is about closing the gap. And praise God, we'll never close it all the way, but there will be enough grace to close it on that day. In other words, beloved, hope promotes holiness. Hope promotes holiness. We hope then in this, in the grace to one day stand among holy saints and holy angels and gaze upon our God who is holy, 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 and to do so without fear, without shame, without guilt, because, because we are as holy as He is holy. That's our hope. Have you ever noticed that the more hope a winning athlete or team has the harder they are willing to work and the more they're willing to sacrifice. You put together a group of people or even an individual that knows they have uh, potential and ability if it's a single individual sport, but especially in a team sport, you put together a group of people and if they have hope that they can win the greatest prize, if they have hope that they can be a national champion, Super Bowl champion, state champion, what have you, you would be Blown away at the amount of sacrifice and work those people are willing to put in. And you contrast that with a team that has no such hope. Now, in some cases, that's that's the right (laughs) way to look at things. There are some teams that don't have a chance. But you watch how they work, and you watch how they sacrifice, and it won't even begin to compare. I was working out this summer with our son Carson at at the croc. Carson is an athlete with hope. He looked around the crock, and then he looked at his dad sweating and groaning and grunting, and he asked this very insightful question. He said, Dad, why do old people work out? (laughs) I mean, your whole life is off-season. I mean, (laughs) you have no season, you have no competition, there's no prize to sacrifice for the best I could come up with was because I like to eat that was was the best I could come up with but I want to give you better than that you see we're all athletes for God we're all athletes for God and we've already won the highest prize our Future victory is certain, guaranteed. That's what biblical hope is. This is not a wish. This is a guarantee. This is going to come to pass. Our glory will be full. Our joy will be inexpressible. Now go train like it. 
Go train like it. Father in heaven, help us to live in hope of the grace that is coming our way if we're in Christ. Help us to sacrifice and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us, Lord, to war against the flesh, to hate and war against the devil, and to war against this fallen world system. And out of that hope for that grace, will you motivate us to be holy as you are holy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.